Well, it is Mother's Day, and uh, there will be a, a gift in the foyer on your way out. And if you're a mother, feel free to grab that uh, on the, the way out this morning. Uh, we are thankful that you are with us today. Um, but we, we also recognize that, that uh, Mother's Day is a mixture of emotion. Uh, there is joy for, for some, and there is sorrow for others. Uh, we understand that, that not everyone has had the same experience uh, with mothers and with motherhood. And therefore, this day carries a, a range of motions depending on your experiences. And so to those who, have, who, who gave birth this year, uh, we celebrate with you. To those who have lost a child, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the, the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or runaways, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes and prods and tears and disappointments, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We do not mean to make it harder. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who have lost their mothers, we grieve with you. To those who experience abuse, who have experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who have lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. And to those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and or rejoice uh, with you. And to those who are pregnant with new life, we anticipate with you. Uh, this Mother's Day, we walk with you and we pray for you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart. We have real warriors in our midst this morning for which we are thankful and we remember you. Well, this morning, as was already mentioned, we have the privilege of celebrating with and supporting three families of our church as they dedicate their children to the Lord. And would those three families come with their, uh, their kiddo? Come on up at this time. I see two. There's three. All right. Well, as they're coming, uh, we want to just make clear what, what, what we're doing here uh, this morning. Some of you may, may or may not be familiar with, with a baby or a child uh, dedication, uh, but the biblical basis for such an act we find in a place like 1 Samuel chapter 1, where Hannah had, had prayed for a child, had prayed that the Lord would bless her with a child, and she says this after having the child, she says, for this boy I prayed... And the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. Now, the purpose of dedicating these children to the Lord is to confess, to profess that children are a gift from God and that they're ultimately his. As Christian parents, dedicating a child means that the parent is acknowledging that God has entrusted this child to them. And so, by God's grace, they are committed to helping their child 
know God and follow God. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we read these words, that we shall, you shall teach them, this speaking of your children, you shall teach them diligently, let me rephrase that, the words of God are taught to the children diligently, and they shall talk to the children when they sit in the house and when they rise up and walk by the way. And when you lie down, in verse 8 says, and you shall bind them as a sign on your head, this is the commandments, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, uh, Jewish people take those things quite literally. Uh, the, the, the message of those those. Uh, verses are certainly that we should be teaching our children God's word. And that's the commitment as we dedicate our children that we are making today. We have sometimes referred to this as child parent dedication. And we do this because not only are we saying that this child is dedicated to the Lord or is the Lord's, but we as parents are also the Lord's. And we are committing ourselves to parent our child according to his word and according to his will. So this morning we have three families uh, here going to dedicate their children, and they stood in the appropriate order. I didn't even tell them to stand in the appropriate order. So you stood alphabetically. Good job. Um, Things we learn early in life, I think, right? So here we have Lucy and Christian and Evelyn uh, Grammets. Then we have Avery, Michael, and Cheyenne Green. And then we have Oakley. And we have Jacob and Ashley Loney. And so this time, we're going to walk through a a covenant that they are going to respond to each question with the the two words, we do, okay, when I give the question. And then there'll be a question for, for you all in just a moment. So parents, do you each know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And do you desire to grow in Christ and serve him to the best of your ability? And do you also desire the same kind of relationship with Jesus Christ for your children that God has entrusted to your care? The Bible clearly teaches that each individual must personally place his or her, in this case her, we got three little girls, uh, her faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. You cannot take this step for your children, but you can do as much as possible to encourage them in this important matter. Do you as parents promise that you will teach your children about Jesus, make known to them the great truths of the Bible, teach them to pray, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, striving to set a good example, a godly example for them? And with God as your helper, do you solemnly promise that you will bring your children faithfully to the house of the Lord for worship and instruction in righteousness, as well as teach them at home? And do you promise to never knowingly do anything to hinder your children from following God's will for their life, but rather do everything in your power to encourage and uphold them as they follow the Lord? I want to commend you all uh, this morning upon your recognition that your children have been entrusted to you by God to raise them for him. I thank you for your public commitment this morning to do everything in your power to guide them to Jesus and to lead them in the way of our Savior. And I promise as your pastor to do everything I can to help you in that important endeavor. Now you all, if you as the faith family of First Baptist Church will support these parents in their commitment to raise their children in a home that is truly Christian and will agree to pray for them and encourage them in this blessed task Please say, we will. will. 
Amen. We thank you for that. And we have some gifts. They probably can't hold them yet. Well, some of them can't hold it yet. I won't go through all those things, uh, but there's books and there are, um, there is a, uh, well, maybe we'll go through this. This one here is called the Jesus Storybook Bible, which if you are a grandparent, this would be a great gift to give to your grandchildren. Uh, they don't have to be this little to receive this. There, I think there's a DVD in here also that goes along with it. There's several other books that Rachel has uh, put together that are helpful in uh, pointing your little kiddo to Jesus. And of course, a, a stuffed animal, because you probably don't have enough of those, right? <laughs> awesome. Okay, well that said, let's, uh, let's pray together, and I'm going to lead us in prayer, and would you just pray along uh, with me as we pray for these three little kids? Um, we'll go here. Can I hold her? Is that okay? If you don't want me to hold your kid, that's okay, but if you do, I'll hold him. I'm not offended. Really, I'm not, but let's, let's pray here. Dear God, thank you for Lucy, and we're thank you, thankful that she is uh, in this world, and that you have brought her uh, into Christian and Evelyn's life safely, and that she is here with us today. We pray that at a point in time, she would come to understand the truths of the gospel, that you would help Christian and Evelyn to point her to Jesus, and that God, you would save her. We know that's not something we can do. We know that's not something any person can do. It's only your spirit. So we pray for your mercy and for your grace for her today, and we thank you for her, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Stretching out there. Get, getting ready for prayer time. Here we go. All right. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for Avery. And we're thankful that she is here. And we're thankful that you've brought her safely uh, into the life of Michael and Cheyenne. And we pray, as we prayed for Lucy, that she would come to know Jesus. That we can do uh, so many things right for our children, but uh, most importantly is to point them to the Savior they so desperately need. So God, would you help Michael and Cheyenne to do that? And at a point in time when, when Avery can understand, would you lead her to Jesus to repent of her sins and trust him as their Savior, her Savior? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I think I'll just put my hand on your shoulder. When they don't know the difference, it doesn't really matter, right? Can I put my hand right here? Is that okay? Maybe not. <laughs> All right. Can I put my hand on your mom and your dad? Let's do that. All right. Dear God, thank you for Oakley. And thank you that she's part of the family of Jacob and Ashley. Thank you that she's part of our faith family. As we prayed for the other two, we pray for Oakley. That at a point in time when she's old enough to understand what Jesus has done for her, that she would come to faith. That she would repent of her sins and believe on Jesus. That she would know how much God loved her. That he sent his only son to die for her. If she would believe, she might be saved. So God, we pray for that. We pray that you would help Jacob and Ashley to point her to Jesus at every chance they can get. And we pray your blessing over her now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Last year, last fall, we did a study through 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 say this. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, 
but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. One writer says, conduct is the best evidence of character. Conduct is to character what leaves and flowers and fruit are to a tree. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Another commentary says, obedience reveals commitment to Christ. It's not just what we say, but how we live. Well, last week we looked at chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And there we read Moses' introduction to the flood narrative. And there we saw him express the, the dire condition of man, that the wickedness of man was great. And that wickedness was the reason for God's coming judgments of the flood. This morning, we begin the, the familiar story of the flood, which serves as the centerpiece of this section of Genesis, that being chapters 1 through 11, or which could be called the, the primeval history, and the rest of the book called the patriarchal history. The flood is a recounting of God's moral judgments on the wickedness of man. We saw it in verse 5, and we'll see it again in verses 11 and 12. But it's not only about judgments. It's not only about judgment and destruction, but also about salvation from judgments. Moses' narrative is constructed very intentionally and quite carefully, and we'll look more of that next week. But broadly speaking, we could observe these chapters, which span from chapter, eight, chapter 6 through chapter 9, into two parts, what Kent Hughes calls decreation and then recreation. The flood being the decreation, and then as the floodwaters recede and Noah leaves the ark into recreation, or the undoing of creation, and then the new beginning with Noah's family. We will see also parallels here between the creation account in chapter 1. But before we get to the flood narrative, um, this section begins with a statement about one of the main characters in our story. And that is Noah. Look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Verse 10. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Moses is the writer of Genesis, and he's beginning a new section here. And we've noted this two times before, but the new section is, uh, we, we find it whenever the phrase, the generations of. We saw it in chapter 2, we saw it in chapter 5, now we're seeing here in chapter 6, and we'll see it some seven more times throughout the rest of the book. The generations of. It's going to tell us a new section uh, starting a new narrative. Now, God is clearly the main actor here, as we will see. 
Uh, but second to God, Noah is obviously an important figure in this story. Noah is mentioned some 50 times in nine different books of the Bible. So here in this narrative, that, in the narrative that follows, we can see at least six things about Noah that are notable for him as a person, but also notable for you and me. And the first is that Noah was a righteous man. That's what, exactly what verse 9 says. Noah was a righteous man. We talked about last week that, that verse 8 tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That God had given to Noah grace. And it's because of the grace that God gave to Noah that Noah could then be called a righteous man. Noah's righteousness was not a result of his works. The Bible is very clear about that. The Bible is very clear that there is no righteousness. That in fact, the prophet Isaiah says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. We don't have righteousness on our own. Not the kind of righteousness that is approved by God. That comes only from God. God gives to or imputes or, um, or accredits righteousness to us. Like Abraham, in a few chapters, we'll get there, it'll be a while, but in chapter 15, we find that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So because of the faith that he expressed, he was counted righteous. Noah is the same. Noah believed God by faith and was considered righteous. We see that in Hebrews chapter 7 when it says, by faith, Noah. Noah did what he did by faith. And therefore, he became an heir of righteousness, Hebrews 11, 7 says, became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So here in Genesis chapter 6, we are seeing the origins or the beginnings of what the Bible calls this idea of imputed righteousness or given righteousness or accredited righteousness. Not my own. But righteousness given to me by God. Only the righteousness given to me by God makes me acceptable to God. My righteousness does not work. Only by the righteousness that God gives through Christ can we be justified. Can we be declared righteous? It's only from God. Not of what I have done, but all of Christ. All from Christ. It is all of grace. Nevertheless, Noah was a righteous man the verse continues, and it was blameless in his generation. Warren Wearsby notes that if righteousness here describes his standing before God, then blameless describes his moral conduct before people. So we have two things going on here, how God sees him and how people see him. He was righteous before God because God gave him righteousness by grace, and he was blameless before people. This speaks to his conduct. It speaks to his unblemished, undefiled conduct, having no fault. There's two other men that this is attributed to in the Old Testament, Abraham and Job. It does not mean sinless perfection. We ought not to confuse the terms. Blamelessness does not mean sinless perfection. Clearly, as we continue our study, we're going to read about Noah. And some of you know about Noah. And Noah was not perfect. When we get past the flood and we get into chapter 9, we're going to see that Noah uh, failed. And we're going to see that in chapter 16, that Abraham failed. Being blameless does not mean sinless. It speaks to integrity, though. In God's eyes, Noah was righteous and he was blameless in his conduct. Thirdly, the text says that Noah walked with God. 
Now, if you've been with us in our study through Genesis, that should sound familiar. Because back in chapter 5, we met another man. The only other man who is given this specific designation. And that's Enoch, who walked with God and was not because God took him. Now, there were other people who walked with God, surely. We know that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. But this specific designation was only given to Enoch and to Noah. To walk with God means to live a life of faith. To live a life of obedience. It means to go in the same direction as God. It means life with God. To say that you walk with God means that you live life with God. Ken Hughes says, The righteous person rests everything on the bare word of God and obeys it. To walk with God means that we obey God's word. Noah walked with God. Noah proclaimed righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 tells us that not only did Noah just walk with God, but he proclaimed God's word. He proclaimed righteousness or herald preached righteousness in the midst of a society that was corrupt. Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That's the condition. The condition of the earth that that this righteous blameless man is in. And Noah faithfully obeyed. He faithfully obeyed God in this circumstance, most notably in the 120 years between when God commanded him to build the ark and when the flood waters came. 120 years, Noah remained faithful as he built an ark in a desert. He built an ark in a desert and he obeyed God's command. Seems ridiculous. Seemed ridiculous then. Most people would have thought it was ridiculous and yet he obeyed God. We see this in the next verses, starting in verse 13 of his obedience. But in verse 13, God reiterates the word of judgment. Look at verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So due to the coming judgment, God would provide a way of salvation. And that was an ark. In verses 14 through 21, we see God's detailed instructions to Noah. These are divine instructions, and Noah understood them to be divine instructions. The word of the Lord to Noah. And what did Noah do? Noah obeyed God. He obeyed God without delay. And the Bible is clear when people don't obey him without delay. The Bible is clear about someone like Moses who hesitated and made excuses for not doing what God has said. Here we see none of that. We see no hesitation. We see no questioning. We see him get right to the task. Noah's obedience is specifically noted twice in verse 22 and then in chapter 7, verse 5. And we'll get there. But start in verse 14 as we hear God's instructions to Noah to build this ark. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Uh, Most people think that this is probably Cypress. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. That's in order for it uh, to be waterproof. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 550 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. 
make a roof on the ark and finish it with a cubit above and set a door of the ark in the side, in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which it is, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, your wife, and your son's wives. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and that is eaten and stored up and it shall serve as food for you and for them. So here's the instructions, right? 14 to 21. That's the instructions. That's what he's supposed to do and we find that Noah does it. He does it. Doesn't ask questions. He doesn't say, well, I actually think it would be better if we used different wood uh, or, or maybe we should make it a little bit bigger because we don't want to be too cramped. He, he didn't make any excuses. What did he do? He built the ark and he gathered the animals. He did exactly as he was told. And that's what verse 22 says. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. God spoke and Noah obeyed. Noah took God's word seriously. He took the word of the Lord seriously. If God spoke it, Noah was going to obey it. If God has commanded it, we too are to do it. Noah obeyed God and he built the ark. And this ark was, was, not, it was not a boat. It wasn't a ship. Uh, quite frankly, it, it was more of a box, really, more than anything. It, it was more of a wooden, um, relatively speaking, shallow box with a roof. Uh, one commentator says it was designed for flotation, not navigation. It was designed to preserve the people inside. It wasn't, it wasn't designed to get somewhere other than stay afloat. Now, some of you have been to Kentucky to the Answers in Genesis Ark Encounter. So you've seen their recreation of what the, the Ark may have looked like. But what we know from the text here is that it was 450 feet long. It was 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. It is said that it was large enough to fit, it is said that it was large enough to fit some 500 livestock railroad cars inside. It was huge. I, it, it, was, it was a massive ordeal. So the, so the planning, uh, the engineering, the, the effort, the labor, the endurance, uh, it is impossible to, to overstate what occurred in building the ark at that time. Sometimes in our life, we lose heart to do what we're supposed to do. Uh, what God has called us to do, we sometimes struggle to finish. We may want to give up. But what we can see here from Noah is that if God has called you to it, he will equip you for it and to continue in it until it is completed we see that Noah faithfully obeyed God. God gave him grace to do it. This wasn't Noah was just a really strong guy. He made it, he made it happen. He's a go-getter. No, God gave him grace. We already saw that. In fact, this is the same grace that 
Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When Paul says that, that familiar phrase, by grace I am what I am. He says, I, I was least of all the apostles, but I worked harder than all of them, but it was the grace of God with me. It was the grace of God that, that enabled me to work harder. We don't work hard on our own. We work hard because God gives us grace. As he did with Noah, so he does with us. Well, Noah obeyed God, doing all that God had commanded him. And in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7, we see that Noah was obedient to the Lord as he and his household went into the ark, taking with them the appropriate animals. Look at verse 1. And the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark and all your household, for I have seen uh, that you are, a righteous, you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, male, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, a male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Now, let's just stop for a minute there. And, and I, I, this isn't rocket science, right? But, but we, we got to note what's there. What, what does he say about the animals? He doesn't say just take two. He says take the mate, uh, the male and his mate. And then he says a male and a female. That's how it works. Now, I'm probably preaching to the choir to some degree here. But what the point is, is that this isn't some uh, idea that, that one group of political people have versus what uh, another group of political people have. Now, this is, this is the reality. This is the historical reality. This is the biblical reality. This is the biological reality that that's how life works, that you need a male and you need a female. That's how it works. That's how it works among animals, and that's how it works among humans. It's the same. And God's very clear. He doesn't say just bring two. It's bring a male and a female. They're different. Not the same. Right? Not the same. Two different things. Binary. Male and female. You might wonder, why do you keep talking about this all the time? If you've been here long enough. Uh, we've talked about this many Sundays. Now, here's, here's the reality. I'm not putting it into the text, friends. It's in the text. When I come to it, I'm going to point it out. And if it comes up again, I'm going to point it out again. And if you think, I, 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 we, we've heard that already, good. I'm glad you heard it. Because that means you were listening. And that does my heart very, very good. Let's go to verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. Verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Decades. We're talking 120 years. Noah obeyed God in all the details. And how did he do it? How did he do it? There's, there, there's, there's no evidence here of a flood coming, right? It wasn't like, oh, shoot, here it comes. Quick, get the cypress. Like, no, it's, 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 there's no evidence. So how did he do it? He did it by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it's by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. The only way you can obey God, the only way you can please God is by faith. How do you get faith? It's impossible to get faith on your own. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tells, For by grace you are saved through faith. And what? That is a gift of God. Faith is a gift. You want faith? Ask for faith. 
God gives you faith to believe. You don't conjure it up on your own. You don't try harder to believe. God in grace gives us faith in order that we might believe. And so it was with Noah. We continue on in the text and we see that Noah waited and he trusted in God in the following verses. We're just going to read it, so bear with me. Starting in verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wife, wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, if you're, if you're trying to count up, he's given you specific days to t- tell us when this is happening, how long it's happening, etc., etc. On that day, middle of verse 11, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were opened and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In the and, and on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Noah's wife, and, three, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. Stop there for a second. What do we see there? Noah, his wife, three sons, and their wives. What is that? That's called monogamy. That's called monogamy. That's God's plan. How did creation begin? Adam and Eve, monogamy. We see decreation here. When recreation appears, what do we have? We have monogamous relationships repopulating the earth. Male and female, monogamous relationships, that's God's design. It was in Genesis 1, it is here again in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, and it is today. Keep reading in verse 14. They and every beast according to his kind, all the livestock according to their kinds, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, According to its kind, every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all the flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went into as God had commanded, and the Lord shut him in. Sovereignty. God is over this thing. God's in charge of this thing. He told Noah what to do. He, he has responsibility, yes, but God is sovereign over this thing. He shuts them in. And then verse 17, and the flood continued 40 days on the earth. Now we see what happens. The waters increase and bore up the ark and it rose above the earth. That's the first thing. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the earth. One more time, verse 19, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits high. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming things that swarmed on the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is not the end of the flood narrative. But up to this point, we see clearly that this is God's judgments, that God is in control of the water that he is sovereign over the waters. In fact, Psalm chapter 
29 verse 10 says this, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. God's in charge. God is in charge of the flood. Now in in more recent centuries, there's been questions about the extent of the flood. Some want to suggest that possibly this was not a universal flood, but rather a geographical or a, a, um, um, a regional flood, a localized flood. So some of them look to the lack of need, meaning if the, the entire earth was not populated, why would we need to flood uh, the entire earth? Wouldn't it just be the populated places? Others look to the, the use of the word earth in other places in the Bible and suggest that there are times when earth is not used as the entire planet, which is true. Additionally, the, the necessary floodwaters to cover all of the earth and to cover mountains, say a mountain like Mount Everest, that's a lot of water. And some have calculated that, that I don't know how there, there could be that much water. And additionally, then how would that water recede? Where would it go? It has to go somewhere, right? How, how does the water go away? But our capacity to understand the ways of God should not be the determination of our faith in God and in his word. We ought to be careful uh, about the, if I can't understand it, arguments. If I can't understand it, I won't believe it. Those kind of arguments have a problem here. If God is sovereign over creation, and he is, if God is sovereign over the flood, and he is, how the waters came and how the waters receded makes no difference. God does that. That's not my concern. That's his concern. Now, some of these questions may be legitimate. They may be, but it misses the point of what God is doing. Our faith is not to be ignorant, it's not to be completely blind, but it's also true that we don't walk by sight, but we do, in fact, walk by faith. So, the plain reading of the text indicates a global flood. So, we ought not to make cloudy what God makes clear, but it's not just our plain reading. As you read through Genesis and you see how Noah, uh, excuse me, how, how Moses presents the flood, he presents it as a universal flood. That's the indication in the text. Additionally, 2 Peter chapter 3 says this, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world then, the world that was then existed, was deluged or flooded with water and perished. And by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. As the universal judgment is upon this world, and that's what Peter just said, there's universal judgment coming. It is, it is uh, analogous to or compared to the judgment of the flood, which is if one is universal, then the other would be universal as well. So we see a universal flood brought universal death. Everything died except Noah and his family. Look at verse 23 again. Now Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. God had protected Noah and his family. He had protected them in the ark and from the flood. God had been patient, as we've said multiple times, decades of time for people to repent, decades of time for people to believe. God had been patient with Noah's generation But salvation from the coming judgment came only through God's appointed means. The only way of salvation was the way that God had designed. It wasn't 
pick your way of salvation. Door number one, door number two, door number three. No, there was one way of salvation. There was one ark of salvation. It was the ark that Noah had prepared. Today, God is still patient. Even now, he has permitted time before the coming judgment on the earth. And as in the days of Noah, Jesus says this talking about his second coming. As in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. People were living it up. They were living it as though nothing was, was going to happen. And then verse 39 says, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the, the coming of the Son of God. Judgment is coming. Like judgment came to Noah, to the earth in Noah's days, so judgment is coming again. And as with Noah, salvation from judgment comes through God's appointed means. As we have said before, the flood is not just about judgment, but about salvation. In this familiar story, we see how salvation comes and through whom or for whom salvation comes. The ark in Genesis is a symbol of salvation. Whoever was on the ark would be saved because whoever was on the ark was, was those who believed. Is my time up? <laughs> it is not up. Nice try. <laughs> whoever was on the ark would be saved. And whoever was on that ark believed that that ark was the way of salvation. It was the only rescue. God has provided rescue again. He has provided rescue again for you and me. He has made a way of salvation. He has made a way for human life to be preserved. He made a way for human life to be preserved from the flood in order to keep the promise of chapter three, verse 15, which we, we've talked a lot about, the seed of the woman. Don't forget what, what Moses is doing. He's saying the promise of chapter three, verse 15, the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would bring salvation, that seed had to be preserved. And how would it be preserved? Through the ark, through, through belief, through faith in God's appointed means of salvation. Whomever would believe God, who would place their faith in God would be saved. It's still true today. The ark of salvation is a picture of salvation this day. As we close, look at verse 16 with me. Chapter 6, verse 16. God says this, make a roof for the ark and finish it with a cubit above and set a door on of the ark in its side. In the ark, there was a door. That seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? You got to have a way to get in and a way to get out. It, it had, a, had a functional means, but it also has a symbolic meaning as well. As we come to the New Testament, we find out that there is only one way into the ark of salvation that God has prepared for us. There's only one way. Jesus actually calls himself the door. I am the door, he says in John chapter 10. He is talking about this idea of being a, a shepherd to sheep and protecting the shepherd, but the, the imagery or the illustration is the same. It's a door. How, how, how do we enter in but through the door? And who is the door? It's Jesus. Later in John Chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one is saved except through Jesus. There is no name given among men under heaven by which we must save other than 
be saved than the name of Jesus. And the question for us today is, have you come to God through Christ for salvation? Judgment is coming. As in the days of Noah, so it will be in our day. Judgment is coming. Have you come to God through Christ? That is the way of salvation. That is the door into the ark of rescue. Have you come? Paul says today, behold, today is the day of salvation. Have you come to him? Do you have someone in your life who needs to hear this good news? Maybe you know someone has yet to come. May God give you an opportunity to tell them. Would you pray for them? Maybe you do. But maybe even just this morning, you can just take a moment and pray that God would give you an opportunity. That he would give you the wisdom to see that opportunity. And that he would give you the boldness and the courage to tell them the good news. That their eyes might be opened. That God would give them faith. And they might believe. The flood narrative is not only doom and gloom, but it's also a message of rescue through the ark of salvation. And we can thank God today for the way of salvation through Christ, which is open to all who would repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, the one who came to rescue us from judgment. We're thankful for the flood that tells us so much about you, it also tells us about your heart for salvation, your way of rescue. And that there's one way. The Bible is clear over and over again that that way is Jesus. And so, Father, even this morning, for those who sit here today and might not know, might not know what's going to happen to them on Judgment Day, I pray that they would see Jesus as the Savior they need, the Lord over all the earth. They would repent of their sins, recognize they're a sinner, recognize that that in the eyes of a holy God, they will receive judgment, as we all will apart from Christ. And they would come to Christ, asking for him to save them from their sin, placing their faith in him and him alone. Thank you for the ark. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Our God.